with regard to Hilchos Shabbos, it really has tentacles that reach way beyond Hilchos Shabbos, but I think it's something that is often misunderstood, or people are simply not aware of the fact that this is an issue when it comes to Shabbos. How many times have you been in a situation where something may not have been set properly before Shabbos, the lights are not set properly, the refrigerator light was not turned off, something of that nature, an alarm clock maybe is going to go off and you don't want it to go. Take, take whatever example you wish. And a young child is taken, put right next to the thing, and pushed against it. Or a young child is encouraged to go and turn a light on, turn a light off, open the refrigerator. What is the status of young children on Shabbos? And I think this is a very important halacha because I have seen that it is something that many people seem not to be aware of. So let us begin by backing up a step. Before we get to Hilchah Shabbos, this is something that is really far-reaching, way beyond Hilchah Shabbos. It begins with the Gemara in the end of Meseches Yivamos. The Gemara tells us that we have three different psukim in three different places in Chumash, two in Parsha Samar, one in Parsha Shmini, which have a very unusual language, a very unusual phrase that is found in the Pasuk, and the Gemara understands that there's something beneath the surface of the Pasuk there that is for us to be learning from those extra words. So first we have in Parsha Samar. The Torah says with regard to the prohibition of eating, of consuming blood. I never really understood it, but it seems that people used to eat blood. It seems that it was a commodity at some point. And the Torah says, you're not allowed to eat blood. Lo sochludam. In doing so, the Torah phrases it as follows. Therefore, I, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I, God, have told the Jewish people, Nobody is allowed to eat blood. Why does the Torah say, Anytime that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, anytime that God commands us, it means every single Jew. So why does it have to specify here, every single soul of the Jewish people, Says the Gemara, and Rashi quotes it there on Chumash, it means, It means, every single Jew has to make sure that they do not consume blood. And that includes, says the Gemara, that we have an obligation as adults to make sure that children do not eat blood or consume it either. That's what we learn from the Pasuk, from the extra words, by the Pasuk that prohibits us from eating down, from eating blood. Then in Parsha Samar, the Torah then goes further and tells us that we have a prohibition for a Kohen, a male Kohen to be metame to a mace. He's not allowed to defile himself. He's not allowed to become tame by coming in direct contact to somebody who is deceased. Now, obviously, the exception to the rule is if it's one of the Shiva Krovim, if it's one of the closest seven relatives, then even a Kohen is allowed to be metame to those relatives as well. Not just he's allowed to, he has an obligation to. I actually had a very fascinating Shiloh this past Shabbos. There was a Kohen in our community who passed away on Shabbos morning. His family came to talk to me on in the middle of davening on Shabbos morning, asked what they should do. And generally the halach is that there is no aninus on Shabbos. There is no, uh, there is no regular rules of avelus or aninus on Shabbos. So Shabbos, as strange as it is, they had to act normal, even though their father just passed away, but they had to come to shul, listen to Kriya Torah, daven, do everything normally, have the Shabbos meals. And the truth is, you're really supposed to pretend like there's nothing going on. Once Shabbos ends, that's when we start with all the preparations for the Levaya and all of the phone calls that need to be made and all the deciding whatever's going to be the Kavad Ames. But on Shabbos itself, we generally assume that Aninus or Avelis is lifted and we don't generally get involved in that on Shabbos. So their question here was, the father passed away in the house. The whole family is together. All the children are Kohanim. The question is, where should they go for the rest of Shabbos? So we know that a Kohen is allowed to be Matame to his relative when... He's involved in the burial of his relative when he's involved in giving covet on mace. But just to sit around in the house when you're not really doing anything on the rest of Shabbos, what right do you have as a Kohen to do that? Very interesting Shiloh. Mm-hmm. So that's what came up this Shabbos morning, which was a very interesting question. Another very important question to think about is, anyone here, I don't know how many of you are married. How many in the room are married? You're married. Married to a Kohen? No. Nobody else is married? Okay, Mirza Shem, we should be able to ask that question next year, and uh, we'll have a lot more hands up, or all the hands up. So, when you get married, if you marry a Kohen, what do I have to be aware of? So you'll say, it's not my problem, I'm a woman, I'm not a Koheness, I'm not a female Kohen, and even if I was, even if I was a Bas Kohen, there is no prohibition for a female to come in contact with a dead body. However, you need to be aware of the following. The Torah here says that when we give the instruction to a Kohen not to become Tameh to a dead, to a deceased, 
The Torah says here also, It says that you have to make sure not only that you as an adult stay far away from Tuma as a Kohen, but even you make sure that the children don't defile themselves either. What happens when you have a woman who's pregnant and she happens to be married to a Kohen and now she wants to know whether she's allowed to go into a cemetery or attend a levaya during the stages of her pregnancy? I think the most commonly asked question that I get every single year is not from the wives of Kohanim, but rather from pregnant women in general who ask that, uh, you know, some grandmother passed away, are they allowed to attend the funeral? And everybody thinks that there is a halacha al-Moshe Misinai, that a pregnant woman is not allowed to go to a funeral. It is not true. There's nothing wrong with a pregnant woman going to a funeral. Shulchan Aruch does talk about maybe a pregnant woman should not go to a zoo. Never heard of that, right? So the Shulchan Aruch says, because the things that we see when one is pregnant, the things that they see can have an impression, can have an impact on the child, on the embryo. And therefore the Shulchan Aruch says maybe she should consider whether or not she wants to be looking at all kinds of animals. That might have a negative impression on the kid. But nobody ever asked that. On Chalamoid, all the pregnant women go to the zoo. Nobody has a problem. Everybody asks whenever there's a levaya, whenever there's a reason to be in the cemetery, they all get nervous. Am I allowed to go? The answer to that is yes. However, the caveat is, if you happen to be married to a Kohen, would you be allowed to do that? So let's break it down. What's the question? Family of Kohanim, what's the question? If the embryo, if the woman is pregnant with a boy, then... How is she allowed to bring that child into a cemetery or to attend a levaya when she is in fact actively being him? She's actively bringing him to a place where he's not allowed to be. Now, you're going to say he's not yet born. Wait, I have a yeah? Why does it matter if he's a boy or a girl? Oh, so the Torah says, good question, the Torah says the only one who has a prohibition against defiling themselves and attending a funeral is only a male Kohen. Female Kohen does not have that prohibition. Why? I don't know. That's what the Torah says. So here the question is, how can a woman who's pregnant, if she's married to a Kohen, and now pregnant from a Kohen, how is she able to attend the funeral? How is she able to go into a cemetery if she is actively going to then bring the child into a place where that child is not allowed to be? So the answer that is generally given is, there's a svek sveka. Svek sveka means there's a double suffix here. There's a double doubt. Number one, some women do not carry a pregnancy to term, and the child is going to be what we call a nefel, which means the child is not going to be born Healthy, the child is not going to be born alive. So maybe you can assume that something's going to go wrong here, and that's why it's not a problem for her to go. And even if everything's going to be healthy and everything will be fine, which it should be, we still have another suffix, another doubt, is this child actually, in fact, a male or a female? And because of that, maybe we have a 75% chance that it's okay for her to go into the cemetery, and therefore it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah? But if you do know the gender, don't oh, problem is that in our generation, where we have an ultrasound, and a woman goes and is able to very easily find out what gender she's carrying, we go back to the drawing board. Is it true that she's actually allowed to go to a cemetery when she knows that she's pregnant with a boy? And would you say, let's say she says, you know, I don't want to find out, because I don't want to get involved in this. Is that something that's an acceptable possibility for her? Is she allowed to say, I don't want to find out? How can you say, I don't want to find out? And this actually has even more far-reaching consequences because it's not just going to a cemetery or going to a levaya. It's even more than that, going to a hospital. Almost every hospital has dead bodies in it. And it's a major question. A Kohen visiting a hospital is a very, very serious question. How is a Kohen ever allowed to do that? Now, the Kohanim generally know to think about that in advance and to figure out where they're allowed to go, where they're not allowed to go. However, most women who are pregnant are not thinking about the fact that when they're going to visit somebody in the hospital who happens to be sick, is this actually okay for me to go? If she's married to a Kohen, that is a major Shiloh. But all of that comes from this Pasuk here. Again, we started off that the Torah says, by the prohibition of consuming blood, of consuming dam, it says not just, am I as an adult not allowed to, but also I have to make sure that my children don't. Then the Torah repeats it again by Tumas Kohanim. Not only is a male Kohen not allowed to be Matame himself, but even has to make sure that the children don't either. And finally, the Torah says in Parsha Shmini, when describing the prohibition of eating Shkatsim, which means insects, which also boggles my mind. But when we come to that prohibition, the question then is, what is the scope of the prohibition? And the Torah says, we assume it's not just something that is limited to the adults. It is something that we have to be mindful of to make sure the children do not eat or consume that either. Okay, it's actually a fascinating discussion in the Chuvas Binyan Tzion. The Binyan Tzion is, anybody know? The Arach Laner. Anybody knows what the Arach Laner was? 
one of the great gedolim in Germany at the same, a little bit, uh, I think he was right after Abshamshir and Paul Hirsch, or right before, I don't know if he was the Rebbe or the Talmud, but uh, whichever one it was, it was sometime around then. And the Binyan Sion has a very interesting discussion. He says, when the Torah says that I have to make sure that I don't have a child do something that, they're not, that I myself am not allowed to do, does that mean anything that the child is not allowed to do, I'm not allowed to facilitate them doing? Or does it mean anything that I'm not allowed to do, I cannot then allow a child to do? Sounds very similar, but the difference would be as follows. Let's say I, I'm a simple Jew, I'm not a Kohen, I'm a Yisrael. If I see a Kohen young child in front of me, would I be allowed to bring that child into a cemetery? Or would you say, of course not. He's a Kohen, I have to worry about his problem. You can't look at it from your own perspective. Don't think about the fact that it's not a problem for me. Think about the fact that it is a problem for that child. And therefore, I would not be allowed to do that. It's okay. If you miss that, it doesn't really matter. Just something to think about. It's an interesting point that he raises. Be it as it may, if this is in fact the halacha, that I'm not allowed to facilitate the prohibition of any Yisur in the Torah for a child. We find it in three different places. From there, the Gemara learns to all Yisurim in the Torah that I'm not allowed to violate the Yisur, the prohibition myself, and I'm not allowed to have a child do it either. Ask the Ran. The Ran is one of the Gedoli Harishonim. So most people have never seen this Ran because it's in the back of Gemara Meseches Yuma, a tiny little print, but it became famous by the Prichadash. The Prichadash in the 1600s quotes in the name of the Ran the following question, and that is, how could it be that the Gemara says in Meseches Yuma Dafayin Ches, that a child on Yom Kippur does not have to fast, and a child on Yom Kippur is allowed to wear uh, leather shoes and all the different things, why shouldn't we assume that that's a prohibition of Los Angelum? Why don't we assume that the same way I'm not allowed to have a child go into a cemetery if he's a Kohen, and I'm not allowed to have a child consume blood, and I'm not allowed to have a child eat insects, which are all prohibited for us as adults, and therefore I'm not allowed to give it to a child, how am I allowed to feed my children on Yom Kippur? How am I allowed to do that? Fascinating question. Now, what are you going to do if the answer to that is you're not allowed to? That would be a big problem, right? Our children are not able to fast. But the Ran asks a very compelling question. If this is in fact the case, then how do we survive every Yom Kippur? How do we do what we do? How do we serve our children? We're going to take your questions in a minute. The answer that the Prichadr suggests, I think, is a very fascinating one. But in doing so, he limits the scope of this prohibition. He says, it's not just that we have a blanket halacha that you're never allowed to give a child any iser. You're never allowed to facilitate that child being involved in any prohibition. It's not so simple. He limits it tremendously by saying the following. It is only when there is an intrinsic prohibition in that food. For example, if I have non-kosher food, the same way I'm not allowed to eat the non-kosher food, I'm not allowed to give it to a young child to eat either. However, here, when it comes to Yom Kippur, the food is not prohibited. It's that there's something superimposed on top of the food. What is that? The fact that today is Yom Kippur. But the food is inherently kosher. The food is inherently okay. It's just that there's an additional problem that is an external factor to keep in mind. And in such a case, the Prichadosh argues that would not be subject to the laws of losa achilam, of what we're describing here. I would not have a problem to give a child something that is absolutely mutter, that is absolutely okay. It just happens to be that there's an external issue that is laying on top of it. Okay, two questions. You had a question? Between which two? Like, you said there's something like overlap. Yes, so if I have, let's say, a non-kosher food item, milk and meat, everybody would agree an adult Jew is not allowed to eat that, and therefore a child is not allowed to eat that item. Here in this case, when we're talking about Yom Kippur, the food is not prohibited, it's that there's a prohibition on the day to consume any food. So when I give the child food, I'm not giving him something that is prohibited, I'm giving him something that is totally permissible. I'm giving him something that is allowed. It happens to be that today is not a good day for him to eat it. That's his problem. But in terms of my facilitating, my giving the child something, it wouldn't be a problem. That's the distinction that he draws. Are there other things like before, besides fast? I have to think. We have to, we have to give it some thought. But, but it's just something to think about. Yeah. Really great question. Would giving a child ice cream a half hour after they ate meat, would that be a problem? What we need to think about there is something that we're going to touch upon a little bit later when we get into whether this is a problem by Yisurim de Rabban. Okay, so maybe just remember the question and bring it up again later okay. when we get there. Um, and also, is there a distinction between your own children and someone else's oh, children? Hold on to that question too. Let's see. 
Yes, question. This is from, is it from the It's from all three. The Gemara says, why do we need all three? The Gemara gets into a whole complicated discussion. Why do we need to learn from Shkatzim, from Dam, and from Tumas Kohanim when it's all the same point? But from all those three, the Gemara says we can learn to everything else that the same way I'm limited in my ability to give a katan, to give a child any of those three, so too I'm not allowed to do for any other prohibition in the Torah either. Okay, so from there, that's the launching pad for everything. Now, the Trumas Hadeshen, Rabbi Yisrael Isserlin, in the late 1300s, who's really the father of Ashkenazic Jewry, so much of the Ramah's commentary on Shulchan Aruch comes from the Mahari Isserlin, which is the Trumas Hadeshen. Trumas Hadeshen happens to be a very interesting sefer. It is a tshuva sefer. Usually not about repentance. It is a tshuva sefer where it is responsa. But usually a tshuva sefer is somebody sends in a question and then the person who writes the book sent the response. But that's not what happened by the Chumas Hadeshen. Chumas Hadeshen made up his own questions that he thought were very compelling questions that were on people's minds. And he just writes a book. He writes a safer to explain the answer to all these questions. Nobody actually presented them, but they're so obvious, they're so basic. So one of the questions that he raises is regarding this. And he says, when the Torah says, when the Gemara tells us in Mesechus Yivamos, that I'm not allowed to be safinan biadayim, that means I'm not allowed to actively Give a child something that is prohibited. What is the reason for that? Why am I not allowed to do that? Why am I not allowed to do that? Explains the Trumas Hadesh, and I'm going to read his words. Dekapid Rachmana. Why is it that the Torah insists that I myself am not allowed to eat this, and I'm not allowed to give it to a child either? Explains the Trumas Hadesh, Shalo Yargil Osola Averos, because I don't want to have the child getting used to doing this kind of activity. When the child becomes of age, he's going to say, well, I grew up in my house and this is what we did every day, so that's what I'll continue to do. Yeah, but there's a difference because when you were a child, it really didn't count. Once you become an adult, it really matters. And the child is going to make a mistake. Why is he going to make a mistake? Because this is what he was used to seeing all the time. And therefore, the Gemara tells us, based on these psukim, that is why I'm not allowed to give something that is prohibited to a child because I have to be concerned when that child grows older, he's going to make a mistake and look back at things that he did as a child, realize that his parents had no problem giving him all these items, not going to realize that it was only because he was a young child, and therefore this is a problem. What's fascinating about Halacha is, the Ma'ari Israelin lives in the 1300s. Then you have a few hundred years later, about 400 years later, you have the Chassam Sofer. Chassam Sofer was the undisputed Gadol Adar, passed away in 1839. Chassam Sofer picks up on this Chumas Adeshen and he says, hey, one second. Shumas Adeshen is telling us that the only reason for this prohibition is because we're concerned that maybe when the child is going to get older, he's then going to look back at something that happened at his, at his younger age, and he's not going to realize that it makes a difference now that he's an adult, and he's going to make a mistake. What case can you come up with where that won't be relevant? Yeah? If a child? Okay, give me another example. What do we call that? Not just an issue with memory. What if you have a child who's a shota? What if you have a child who's mentally incapacitated? A child who simply will never, unfortunately, based on Derech HaTeva, maybe there's going to be some kind of medication that's going to come out. But based on the rules of science that we know today, if you have a child who has a serious mental handicap and will never naturally come to a point where he's ever going to be able to understand anything that we're talking about here, so maybe that should be permissible. Maybe there shouldn't be any problem. And that is, you'll say it's an esoteric question, but unfortunately this question comes up all the time. How does it come up? Because you have families who have a child who is very, very severely handicapped, not physically, but mentally. And when you have that situation, sometimes it's too difficult for the parents to care for that child, and they have to give the child to some kind of institution to be able to care for the child properly. And the question becomes, what kind of institution can they look at? Do they have to make sure that they find an institute that is able to serve kosher food and keep Shabbos and is going to do everything that this child would otherwise be provided with at home? Or would you say, no, I don't have a problem sending a child to an institute where they're going to serve non-kosher food. After all, what's the problem? The whole problem with serving a child non-kosher food is that I'm concerned that maybe when the child gets older, they're going to reflect back on what they did as a child, and they're going to think that they're still allowed to do that. But the problem is, that's only when we have a child who's going to get older and understand that. But here, this child 
is never going to understand it, even when he or she becomes an adult. And therefore the Chassam Sofer says, maybe based on this Chumas Hadeshan, Chumas Hadeshan again explains, why does the Gemara tell us that we're not allowed to give something prohibited to a child? It's not just because the Torah said so, it's because we're concerned that the child is going to make a mistake as an adult. And therefore says the Chassam Sofer, if I've identified a case where it really is not going to be a problem, then maybe that should be permissible. That's the big discussion in the Chassam Sofer, a very famous chuba that he writes. And in the middle, he writes the following. He says, one second. We have a discussion, a very interesting discussion, where the Gemara talks about uh, the following case. It's in the end of Masechah's Bab Metziah. The Gemara gets into a discussion among the Tanayim, whether Darshinan Taimedekra or Lo Darshinan Taimedekra. I'm going to explain what that means in a second. What does it mean? The Torah says as follows. When I lend somebody money, I have no guarantee the person's going to pay me back. So what, what do I do? I take some kind of guarantee. How do I take a guarantee? Whatever. I'll take something very valuable that belongs to them that I know they want to get back. I'm going to hold on to it until they have the money to pay me back. Fine. That's normal. That's fair. That's something that is totally halakhically sanctioned. That is okay. Here's the problem. Torah says, what happens if you have an almana? An almana needs money. A widow needs money. And I want to help her. Problem is, I want to take a guarantee to make sure I'm going to get paid back. What's the issue? What's the issue? The almana doesn't have anything. She's poor. What am I going to take from her? The standard almana that's being described in the Chumash is an almana who simply doesn't have anything. So the concern is, what am I going to take from her? So I start rummaging through her house and I realize there's nothing for me to take. What am I going to take? Her dining room table? She has to be able to eat. So what am I going to do? Oh, I have a great idea. Here's the idea. She has one article of clothing that she wears during the day. Then she has a pair of pajamas that she wears at night. So here's what we're going to do. Every morning I'm going to come and take a pair of pajamas. Every night I'm going to come and take the clothing that she wore during the day. I'll keep switching back and forth every morning, every afternoon. New, how's that going to look? What happens? You knock on the woman's door at 6.30 in the morning. Okay, I'm here to pick up the pajamas. One second, I don't have clothing to change into. Okay, so get undressed. She's going to stand behind the door, get undressed. I'm going to go and give her the clothing, you know, with, with behind the door. I'm going to throw it. She's going to throw me the pajamas. Then at night, I'm going to be switching back. I mean, is this reasonable? Does that make sense? That's insane. Imagine what people in the neighborhood are going to say. Every day, they see me walking out of her house with her clothing going to start wondering. Here you have an almana with this man coming to get the clothing. doesn't make sense. What's going on there? The Gemara says, therefore the Torah says, When you lend money to an almana, don't you dare think of taking her one article of clothing, even though you're going to leave her with something. But you're going to come every morning and take the pajamas. You're going to come at night and take her clothing during the day. That's not reasonable. And the Torah says you're not allowed to do it. Okay, makes sense. Now the Gemara discusses what happens if I have almanusah shalmelech. What if I have a multi-millionaire? A woman is a millionaire. And she has plenty of things in the house. So when the Torah says, Lo beged almana, when the Torah says, you're not allowed to take a collateral from a woman who is an almana, does that mean an almana across the board? I have to be nice to an almana regardless of her status, whether she's an ania or an ashira, whether she's rich or she's poor? Or is this something that is limited to an almana ania? Is this something that is only limited to a poor woman and because of the concern that we raised, how is that going to look? If I keep taking her clothing every day, that's, that's not going to be a reasonable solution. So that's the discussion that the Gemara has. It turns out to be a machlok of Shimon and of Yehuda. Darshin on time of the Quran or not. Do we say that we can give reasons behind the mitzvahs of the Torah and therefore define the scope of the mitzvah in the Torah? If you say the reason why the Torah said losach begat al is because it's going to look very uncomfortable if you're going to be going back and forth through your house every day, then maybe I'll say that that shouldn't apply to an amana ashira, to a rich woman. But if I'm talking about something that the Torah just said it in a broad context, and now you're limiting it because of the reason you gave, who said you're correct? So that's a major discussion whether darshin and time of the Quran or not. And that's what the Chassam Sofer gets into here. We have a prohibition, the Torah says, you're not allowed to give a child something that is prohibited. Shuma Zadashin comes and limits the scope of that. How does he do that? He says, that only applies when we're talking about something where you have a child who's going to grow up and who's going to then make a mistake based on what they saw was done when they were children. But if I have a scenario that I can come up with 
where that's not a concern. For example, the one that we gave, if you have a shota, you have a child who's never naturally going to come to that stage of understanding, then maybe that shouldn't be a problem. Some surfer says, who in the world is the Tshumas Adeshen to start limiting the scope of the Pesukim and Chumash, of what the Torah's intention was? Who said the Tshumas Adeshen is correct? Who said he has a right to do that? So that is a very major, famous discussion in the Chassam Sofer. And as I said, very, very relevant to many, many situations that we confront when you have a family that wants to send the child to an institute and it's probably the healthiest thing for that child to be there. Question is, are they allowed to send the child there or perhaps not? A very, very relevant and very important discussion that actually is more common than you may have thought. So, uh, so that's a very important um, that's a very important piece to talk about. When we talk about Toshida and time of the crud, just something to be aware of. When we talk about whether or not you're allowed to learn the reasoning behind the Torah's laws and then make an assumption based off of that, there is an exception to the rule where everybody would agree that we're allowed to. For example, if the Torah itself writes the reason in the Torah. So for example, the Gemara Masecha Sanhedrin says, when you have a king, a king is allowed to marry many, many women. However, the Torah says, Lo yarbalo nashim. He can't marry too many. Why not? Why is he not allowed to marry too many? I never understood the whole thing. I don't know how anyone was able to keep up with more than one wife. I don't know how it's possible. All the pairs of shoes, right? <laughs> Forget everything else. How's it possible? Anyway, but the Torah says, Lo lo nashim. Then the next words are, Velo yasser levavo. So the Gemara seems to say in Sanhedrin, the Torah itself is explaining the context of that prohibition. Why do we say that a melech is not allowed to have too many wives? Because if he's going to be too busy with all of his wives, he's going to be distracted and he's going to have his mind racing to other things where they're not supposed to be. And that's the reason why the Torah says, Lo yarbelo nashim. What if he marries a hundred women and all of them are the greatest nashim sitkanios in the world? So then the Gemara says, maybe he's allowed to. Maybe he's allowed to. Because then this whole thing wouldn't apply. So that again is a discussion that the Gemara has. Should we assume that when the Torah itself writes the reason next to the mitzvah, maybe that should clearly define what the mitzvah or Avera is all about, and that's not left up to our suggestion of what it could or maybe could not mean. Am I, is that clear? Okay. Let, let's say, give another example. The Torah says, what is the last mitzvah in the Torah? Number 613. Huh? To write a Sefer Torah. Okay, so we have a mitzvah. We have a mitzvah to write a Sefer Torah. That means every Jew has a mitzvah to make sure that they commission the writing of a Sefer Torah. Not all of us know how to write a Sefer Torah ourselves. So we have to pay to have a Sefer Torah written on our behalf. Okay, it's expensive, hard mitzvah to do. Comes along the rush and he limits the scope of that mitzvah and he says, one second, look at the next words of the Torah. What does the Torah say? What's the reason why you should write a Sefer Torah? What, everyone should just have a Sefer Torah in their house? Why? What's the reason? No, there's a reason for it. Because the Torah says, V'lamda Yisrael, in order to be able to teach your children what the Torah is all about. And therefore the Rush says, in the days of the Gemara, in the days of the Torah, when everybody used to learn from the text of the Torah itself, that's the way they educated. So then it was important that every single Jew had a Sefer Torah in their house available to teach their children. But today, we're none of us. When we want to learn, we don't go and open up a Sefer Torah and learn from it. We have other Svarim. We have many other books that we can learn from. Therefore the Rush says, in our generation... The whole mitzvah has changed. The whole nature of the mitzvah has changed. And the Rush argues, we no longer have an obligation to write our own personal Sefer Torah. Now we have an obligation to buy Svarim. If you buy Svarim, and you have books in your house that are able to help educate you and your family, that would be the same as the mitzvah of Again, that is an exception because there, the Torah says it explicitly, right next to the mitzvah itself, and that is why the Rush argues that that would be different. Okay, so we have this discussion that the Gemara has about giving a child something that is prohibited. The clear maskana, the clear bottom line of the Gemara is that I'm not allowed to give a child anything that is prohibited for an adult is not allowed to be done for a child either. Now the Rishonim ask a very obvious and basic question. How old is this child that we're talking about? Don't we all know there's a mitzvah of chinuch? Chinuch means I have an obligation to educate my children to be upstanding and good Jews. Now, 
shouldn't this be naturally part of the mitzvah of Chinuch? Why does the Torah have to go out of its way to tell me, don't let a child consume blood and don't let a child eat insects and don't let a child be metame and defile himself by going to a cemetery if he's a Kohen? Why does the Torah have to say that? I have a primary obligation of Chinuch. Of course I'm going to make sure my child doesn't do any of the above. So how do you understand the whole prohibition here in the first place? This is a big discussion in the Rishonim. Tosis writes in the Sefer Shabbos, and this is quoted in the Ramallah Halacha and Arachayim Simen Shin Mem Gimel, it's in Hilcha Shabbos. The, we're going to get to the Shabbos application of this in a few minutes, but this is all just the background. So Tosis writes in the Sefer Shabbos that the Chiddush of the Gemara here is that we're talking about a child who's lohi gielachinuch. We're talking about a child who's beneath the age of understanding. What does chinuch mean? Chinuch means when my child becomes of age to have an understanding of this mitzvah, then I should teach him. When my child starts to understand the context of what we're discussing here, then it makes sense that I should get my child in the mood of doing this kind of thing, that they should know how to be a practicing good Jew. But if we're talking about a child who is beneath the age of chinuch, a child is six months old, doesn't know anything, doesn't understand anything that's going on here, would I still have a prohibition? Says the Torah, yes. You're still not allowed to feed that child blood. You're still not allowed to do anything that is prohibited, even if it's lo That's what some Rishonim say. Other Rishonim say that perhaps what the Gemara is telling us here is the following, and that touches on your question. When we speak about chinuch, who has an obligation to be mechanic children? The parents have an obligation. The parents have an obligation to make sure the children are educated. Now, not every parent is able to educate their children to the max and to do everything on their own. So we send our children to school, we pay tuition in order that they should be our partners in helping to educate our children. But really, it is our obligation as parents to educate our children. Is it the obligation of other community members if they see my child not being educated? Does somebody have to pull my child aside and say, you know, come meet me tonight in the shul, I want to go teach you something. No, it's not their problem. That's not their obligation. That's the parent's obligation. And if the parents make a mistake in their obligation and they fail in their obligation, that's their fault. That's not the problem of the community. However, here, what the Torah is saying is, we have to go beyond that. While chinuch is something that is only limited to parents, this prohibition in the Torah is something that spans across the entire community. So I'm not allowed to go over to someone else's child and give them a prohibited item that they're not allowed to eat. Doesn't matter if I'm their parent, doesn't matter if I'm not the parent. Nobody's allowed to do that. And that's why the Torah has to go out of its way to tell us that this is something that goes above and beyond the mitzvah of chinuch, because the mitzvah of chinuch is something that is limited to parents, and this prohibition that the Gemara talks about is something that goes far beyond parents, and it's something that, and it's something that applies to all of us as adults. Yes. Oh, you're saying, why does that make sense at all? Why does the Prichadosh make sense? Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Very good question. Again, a lot of discussion whether or not the Chumas Hadeshin is the accepted opinion, but that's a very good question. If we do accept the Chumas Hadeshin, why should there be a difference? Great question. Okay, then the Gemara broadens the discussion and says, outside of me asking the child to do something or giving the child something that is prohibited, if I see a child on his or her own, doing something that they're not allowed to do, do I also have to step in? Do I have to encourage them to stop? Or do I say, no, what the child does is their problem. I'm just not allowed to be the one to facilitate it. But if a child on their own decides to do something wrong, not a problem at all. The halacha and the rambam and the shulchan arachsim and shin mem gimel is that although I'm not allowed to actively facilitate the child doing any prohibition in the Torah, I have no obligation to stop a child if they're doing something wrong on their own volition. That's clear in the Shulchan Aruch, that's the bottom line of the Gemara, and that's the way we paskin. Although, that is clearly the Halacha, and that is the bottom line in the Shulchan Aruch, the Rambam is very careful to point out that if I'm the parent, I still have a mitzvah of chinuch. I still have a mitzvah of chinuch. If I see a child doing something wrong, I still have a mitzvah to be mechanich my children. But in general, if a child is doing something on their own, and let's say a child doesn't have an understanding yet, the child is two years old, doesn't know that they're doing anything wrong at all, is not aware of the fact that a Shabbos doesn't really understand anything, then Chinuch wouldn't really apply in that situation, and therefore I would have no problem, I would have no obligation at all to be involved. There is another point to consider, which is interesting. The Gemara says in Masechus Erevin, anytime we have a bracha that needs to be recited, 
the bracha is always elevated when it's done over a cup of wine. You ever wonder, how come every time we have some kind of communal event, we always have a cup of wine there? We get married, we have a cup of wine. There's a bris milah, there's a cup of wine. A pita ben, a cup of wine. A sheva bracha, a cup of wine. Why? Why do we always have a cup of wine? So the Gemara assumes that the cup of wine is something that is going to elevate the bracha that we're reciting. By using a cup of wine, it will elevate the bracha that we're reciting. Ask the Gemara, what happens? Yom Kippur night. We all go to shul. One of the first things that we do on Lel Yom Kippur is we say the bracha of Shech Before we daf we say Shech Why do we say Shech Say Shech the same way we say Shech every Yantif. We thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for bringing us to another year where we're able to commemorate Yom Kippur. We're able to celebrate Yom Kippur. We're able to daven and connect on Yom Kippur. So that's why we say Shech What do we normally do on every Yom when we say Shech We use a cup of wine. We say Shechianu in Kiddush. Correct? So if we say Shechianu in Kiddush on Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, and every other time during the year, then ask the Gemara, how come when it comes Lel Yom Kippur and we have to say Shechianu also, why don't we take out a cup of wine in Shul and say Shechianu over a cup of wine? Sounds like a klutz kasha. Right, Gila? And we Correct, because on Hanukkah, if you're going to stand by the candles with a cup of wine, it's going to be, uh, right? It's probably just too many things going on, right? Okay, so why not on Yom Kippur? How do you explain why not on Yom Kippur? So the Gemara says it's a practical. What are we going to do? We're going to take a cup of wine, say, And now what? What are we going to do with this cup of wine? Just pour it out? Then your was not warranted. So what are we going to do? says the Gemara, I have a great idea. Why don't we call upon a child, say, here, come up to the bima. We're about to make a Buri Piyagafen. We're going to have you in mind when we say the bracha. We're going to say Shechianu immediately following the Buri Piyagafen, and then you're going to drink the cup of wine. What's wrong? Cup of grape juice, whatever. Are right, you going to drink the cup of wine. So what's the problem? Why don't we do that? says the Gemara, Dilma Asila Misrach. We have to be concerned that the child is going to have a memory he was called up in front of the whole shul to drink a cup of wine on Leil Yom Kippur. He's going to think that on Yom Kippur night, this is what we do. Yom Kippur night, we all drink a cup of wine. And as he becomes an adult, he's going to do the same thing. Not realizing that the only reason why they called him up in shul to drink the cup of wine is because he was the only child in shul. And therefore the Gemara says we have to be concerned. Dilma asi the Misrach. Maybe the child is going to make a mistake once he becomes an adult. Because he's going to remember the story from when he was a child and not realize to differentiate between when he was a child and when he was in, when he's now an adult. I have a friend who went out of town for a, um, it was a shul that asked for a rabbi in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. So my friend, uh, you know, was, was young and he was asked to go, so he decided to go. He gets there and it happens to be it was Yom Kippur that fell out on Shabbos. And he says that right after the Shemana Esrei, on Leil Yom Kippur, on, when they were doing Kol Nidre, Right after the Shemona Esrei, the Gavai comes out with a cup of wine, with the, the Kiddush cup, and uh, he's about to make Kiddush. <laughs> and this guy says, what are you doing? He says, well, it's Shabbos. He says, yeah, but like, it's Yom Kippur. He's like, no, no, but Shabbos, we make Kiddush. And they got in a whole fight. That was the last time he was invited back there. <laughs> they got in a whole fight. The Gavai says, I'm telling you, we always have a cup of wine, on, even when it's Yom Kippur, but if it's Shabbos, is what we do. Anyway, so it was a very startling experience for him, but this is what the Gemara discusses. The Gemara says we don't do that because we're afraid that maybe somebody's going to make a mistake down the line. All of this brings us to Hilchah Shabbos. All of this brings us to Hilchah Shabbos. What does the Torah say in the Aserah Sadibras? Lo sasa You're not allowed to do any malacha. What do we say? Ata, uvincha, uvitecha. I'm not allowed to do malacha, and my children are not allowed to do malacha. So we understand. My servants are not allowed to do malacha for me. My animals are not allowed to do work for me. Okay. But the Mechilta, the Medrash wonders, what does it mean? When the Torah says, Ata, when it says, I'm not allowed to do any malacha on Shabbos, isn't Bincha Bitecha the same as Ata? If I have a son and a daughter, and they're reading the Pasuk in Chumash, so it says, I'm not allowed to do malacha on Shabbos. That includes them. Why does the Torah have to go out of its way to specify Bincho Bitecha, my son and my daughter are not allowed to do Malacha? The answer is, says the Gemara, it's including Elu Haktanim. I'm sorry, says the Medrish, this includes 
young children. Not only do we say that an adult is not allowed to do Malachan Shabbos, but a child is also not allowed to do Malachan Shabbos. And that's what it means when it says, Ata uvin techa. Ata means all the adults in the Jewish community are not allowed to do Malacha. Bin techa means all the children are not allowed to do Malacha either. And I, as the adult, have to make sure that my children don't do any Malachan Shabbos. This is what Rashi quotes on Chumash in the name of the Mechilta. Now, here's the problem. Why does the Gemara have to go out of its way? Why does the Torah have to go out of its way to teach me with regard to the laws of Shabbos that a child is not allowed to do Malacha? Don't we already know it? How do we know it? How do we know it? It's not a trick question. From everything we spoke about. The Gemara first begins in Mesechus Yavama's telling us. We have three psukim, two in Parashat Samar, one in Parashat Shmini, that teach us an overarching principle to the rest of the Torah, and that is that any time I am not allowed to do something, I'm not allowed to facilitate a child doing that either. That should cover everything. That should cover Shabbos as well. And we know that every word in the Torah is so carefully measured and is there for a particular purpose. So why does the Torah have to go out of its way with regard to Shabbos in particular? After we already know this from everywhere else, why does it have to have a specific requirement by Shabbos of Ato bin Chavitecha? Make sure that your children don't do any Malachan Shabbos. I know that already. If my child who's a Kohen is not allowed to go into a cemetery and my child is not allowed to eat Shkatsim Uramasim and my child is not allowed to eat anything that's non-kosher, so too my child is not allowed to be Mechal Shabbos. So why do I have to go out of my way to teach this Halacha with regard to Shabbos when I should already know it from the general principle that applies to everything? Good question. Everyone understand? That, yes. Rabbi, didn't we say that um, like on Yom Kippur, like the child can have kosher food technically because it's it's the time frame. Right. So now we're saying that, so this is contradicting that and maybe that's why it's specifying that. Oh, so it's the time. Good question. So there, we're talking about non-kosher food. Over there, the food that I'm giving the child is not non-kosher. The food is kosher. The food is kosher. The time is a problem. Here, the malacha, the activity, is a problem itself. The activity that's being done is a problem, because today is Shabbos, right? But on Yom Kippur, you know what I meant to eat, so eating is the activity that's a problem. Uh-huh. You're saying it should be the same. Good question. I like that. It's a very interesting question. I don't know. I have to think about that. It's a good point. So this is a question that is raised by... Reb Chaim Moser in the Tshuva's Achiezer. Reb Chaim Moser was the undisputed Gadol Hador right before the Holocaust. Reb Chaim Moser was a major, major, major Posek and Talmud Chacham, the leader of European Jewry before the war. And Reb Chaim Moser asked this question and he wonders, what is so unique about Shabbos? Why do I have to have a special Posek in the Torah to teach me this very same Halacha? And he gives three answers. One answer that he suggests is, what we learned many weeks ago. We learned that in order to qualify as a malacha, it has to be what we refer to as a malachas machsheves. Malachas machsheves means it has to be a deliberate act. We learn all of the lamatas malachas, we learn all the laws of Shabbos from the building of the Mishkan. And when the Mishkan was being built, everything was being done very specifically, very deliberately. Nothing was being done by mistake, without thinking. And therefore, from there we learn that there's a requirement in order to violate a malacha on Shabbos, you have to do something that is referred to as a malachas machsheves. You have to have intent for what it is that you're doing. A child does not have intent to do anything. So maybe I would have said that this is not something that is relevant to a child. Although we have an overarching principle that says I'm never allowed to have my child do anything wrong, maybe I would say that that doesn't apply to Shabbos because if the child is young, and they don't have an understanding as to what it is that they're doing, that's not called a malachas machshebes. And therefore, it's not defined as a malacha at all. Comes the Torah here specifically to teach us by Shabbos as well, ato vin chavitecha. And the Torah comes to tell me that even by Shabbos, we would consider that to be a malacha, we would consider it to be a problem, and my child is not allowed to do something wrong, not just in other areas of Torah, but on Shabbos as well, when it comes to doing a malacha, that would be something that would be problematic and prohibited as well. That's one answer that he gives. A second answer that he suggests is, we have a special halacha by Shabbos, that someone who's machal Shabbos is dino ka'aku. If we have somebody who goes and eats non-kosher food, 
Would we say that that person is allowed to still count for a minion? Of course. They did something wrong. If you have somebody who talks Lashon Hara, do we say that person is now an outcast from the Jewish community? Nope. We say that you're an Avaryan. You have a problem. You did something wrong. Try to do tshuva. Try to better yourself. And, uh, and whatever. It is what it is. If you have someone who violates Shabbos, says the Gemara, Mechal Shabbos is considered to be in a league of its own. And therefore the Gemara teaches us, HaMechal Shabbos is Dino Ka'akum. Someone who's in Mechal Shabbos takes on a new status. You've lost your status as a member of the Orthodox community. You have now a status like a non-Jew. Now, that doesn't mean that on Erev Pesach I'm allowed to sell my chametz to someone who's in Mechal Shabbos. doesn't mean that. Right? It just means that for all intents and purposes, when we need you to count as a Jew, you're not going to count for us because you are Mechal Shabbos. Says the Achiezer, a brilliant answer. He says, if I serve my child non-kosher food, so I violated a prohibition. And it says, I'm not allowed to eat non-kosher food. I'm not allowed to give my child non-kosher food. If I bring my child and I ask the child to violate Shabbos, am I considered like a Mechal Shabbos? Am I considered like a Mechal Shabbos? Comes the Torah and says, Ato bin Yes. When it comes to the laws of Shabbos, you're responsible for yourself and you're responsible for your children. And if your children do something wrong on Shabbos, it's as if you are a Mechal Shabbos. And the implication of that is going to be Mechal Shabbos Dino Ka'akub. It means you're an outcast from the Jewish community, not because you did something wrong, but because your child did something wrong. So it comes to teach us the severity of Shabbos, that this is above and beyond the prohibition that we find by any other thing that we encounter in the Torah. Shabbos is a step above, and if a child does something wrong on Shabbos, it is the parents' responsibility, and we are going to hold that against the parents and consider them to be Mechalalei Shabbos and Dino Ka'akam. Brianna, you had a question? Yeah, so we said before that if the child is doing something wrong, mm-hmm. the parent sees it but doesn't facilitate it, then they don't have to stop it. Mm-hmm. So you're saying this doesn't, this, has, this doesn't apply to Shabbat? That's what it would seem, correct. Okay. And so even if the parent didn't, like, Oh, so that so so now I want to get into now I want to get into practical examples of Shabbos to try to play this out. Let's see what the halach is going to be. Yes, question. Uh, based on this, that, like you have the status of being Mechal Shabbos, mm-hmm. let's say you tell your child to tell another child, would that like transfer and count as a Jew telling the? Why would that be different? I don't think Amira or Amira. Okay, Amira da Amira by Amir la'akum the Mishnah quotes that in the name of Samachronim, which is an opinion that we do not accept. So, it's really a borrowed term from the Gemara Masechus Gittin that has nothing at all to do with Shabbos, and it's really something that is not accepted by Hilchah Shabbos either. The Mishnah says there is such an opinion, I forget who he quotes, uh, one of the earlier Achronim, but it's something that's generally not accepted. So actually in, in Poland and in Hungary, there was a major discussion in the uh, early 1800s, about a child doing a malach on behalf of the parents. The problem was as follows. People were very poor. People today are also poor in many communities. But back then, it was a very simple life. And people were very, very poor. And it's not like every shul had 100 sidurim in the shul, and then we also had sidurim at home. Everybody had one sitter. Every family had one sitter, if they were lucky. So you had to bring the sitter home in order to make kiddush and to bench. Nobody knew the benching by heart. Then you have to somehow figure out how you're going to get the sitter back to the shul to be able to daven on Shabbos. So this was a problem. And they lived in communities in Poland where they did not have an Eruv. And the question then became, what do we do about the fact that we need the sitter or the talis or anything else on Shabbos that has to get from place A to place B? And we don't have an alternative. We don't have an Eruv. And we don't have an extra sitter. So today we laugh at the problem because we say this is really not an issue. We all have Sidurim and Shul. But back then this was a major, major discussion among the Poskim. Rabbi Kiva Eger and the Teferis Yisrael lived around the same time, early 1800s, and they were discussing this issue. What do we do about the fact that we have to figure out how to get the Siddur from place A to place B and we don't have a way to do it without a child carrying it. So the Mishnah Brewer has a long arichas, a long discussion to figure out what is allowed, what's not allowed, the Yeshal Avram, who's one of the prominent Ahronim in the back of the Shulchan Aruch, gives the following suggestion. 
And he says, the whole problem over here is that I'm going to destroy the chinuch of my child. Because if I start having the child do some malacha on Shabbos, when the child gets older, they're going to end up doing that as well. Says the Eishel Avram, this won't destroy the chinuch of my child. Why? Because when my child gets older and says, oh, I remember I used to carry the sitter every Shabbos, I'll tell him, no, that's because we had an Erev. What do you mean? The child doesn't know the difference. Was there an Erev? Was there not an Erev? Well, he's looking around the strings. And therefore the Eishel Avram says, it's not a problem. You can have your child carry the sitter and carry the talus and carry everything else you need. Because later on, if he ever questions you about it, you say, no. What do you mean there was an Erev then? Oh, now we live at a time when there's no, more, there's no longer an Erev, so that's why we don't do this anymore. But back then, when you were a child and you used to carry, there was an Erev outside, and that's why we allowed you to do it. Is that true? Is that true? That any time a child is not going to realize, so we just say, oh, it doesn't really matter because the child doesn't get it anyway? So this is a big discussion when it comes to many different halachas. For example... How long do the Hanukkah candles, I know this shear is like in a million different places in Shulchan Aruch, but this is the way Torah works. When it comes to Hanukkah candles, how long are the candles supposed to burn? At least a half an hour. Where does that come from? So the Gemara says, Okay, till people aren't walking anywhere. Okay, so a half an hour. Let's say argument's sake, a half an hour. I have a child who wants to light Hanukkah candles. I should be mechanach my child. Okay, but I don't have enough oil to give them to burn for a half an hour. So can I put an oil that's just going to last for 10 minutes? What, the kid's going to sit and look at his watch and figure out, oh, is it really half an hour or not? Is that a proper chinuch? Can I give my child, who's five years old and wants to shake the lulav, can I give them a non-kosher lulav? Or can I give them a lemon? They won't know the difference. It looks the same. They don't know all the intricacies of the halachas of lulav, what makes it kosher, what's not kosher, what invalidates it. Can I give the child a lulav or an esrog that I know is not kosher? And assume that that will be sufficient. There's a discussion in Hilchas Avelis, Rabbi Kibeger talks about. When you have, unfortunately, a child who's in Avelis, the child has to rip Kriya. And there, Rabbi Kibeger writes, when we do the Kriya on a child, we have to do it Kailacha. It has to be a Tefach. It has to be the requisite shear. Everything has to be the right amount. The same way it would be done for an adult. Why? The child is not sitting there with his measuring tape figuring out, oh, how long is it? Is it do it the right way? He has no idea. He doesn't know what the shear is. And later on when he becomes an adult and starts asking questions, oh, did you really do the Kriya right? We'll say, of course we did the Kriya. You're just not remembering correctly. You didn't realize what the shear actually was. No, says Rabbi Kibbega, we have to do it the right way. The Chok Yaakov in Ilchus Pesach writes as well, what happens if you have a five-year-old, a ten-year-old child who wants to drink four cups of wine on Lela Seder, four cups of grape juice, Lela Seder. So how much wine do you need to drink in order to be considered four cups of wine? Has to be a revius, has to be a minimum size. But I don't have enough big cups in the house. So can I give a child something that is much smaller than a revius? I know it's smaller. Either because I want the child not to have too much grape juice right before they go to sleep, or because I just simply don't have a cup around that's the right size. Or do you say, no, if you're doing the mitzvah of chinuch, if I'm trying to educate my children, it has to be done the right way. And everything has to be exactly the way it is. Or would you say, no, the child is never going to figure out the difference between the right shear and the wrong shear and the right size, the wrong size. How far do we go with this? How much does it need to be exactly the way it is when I'm doing the mitzvah as an adult? And how much do you say, well, if a kid won't really tell the difference, it doesn't really matter. And that's why the suggestion of the Yeshua Avram is very questionable. When he said, back to where we started, this whole discussion, am I allowed to have a child carry outside when there's no Erev, when I need the sitter in my house and I need my sitter in the shul, can I have the child bring it? Rabbi Kiva has a discussion about it to Pharisee Yisrael, the Mishnah Bura, says the Eishel Avram, what are you concerned about? When the child is going to grow older and he's going to start questioning you about what he did when he was a child, you're going to tell him, no, there was an Erev outside. What's the problem? Is that true? Is that true? That I'm able to just do that if the child is not going to recognize that it doesn't really matter? Or do you say that from all these other situations, it seems that that's really not the case, that we don't have a right to trick the child and say, oh, well, everything was fine. You just didn't realize at the time what it really was about. And maybe that would not be something that is deemed appropriate at all. When the Gemara and the Shulchan Aruch say that you're not allowed to actively facilitate a prohibition to a child, right? It says, I don't have to stop a child from doing something, but I'm not allowed to actively give a child something wrong and help them do it. There's a further discussion between the Rajva and the Rambam. Does that apply only to a biblical prohibition to an Isidar Raisa? Or do we say it's across the board? Even in Isidra Banan, I'm not allowed to facilitate to the child either. The Ramam says, why should there be a distinction? 
if an adult is not allowed to violate an Issa de Rabbanan, if an adult is not allowed to do anything that's biblically prohibited or rabbinically prohibited, then a child is not allowed to either, and the adult is not allowed to facilitate the child to do either. And the Rajbah disagrees, and the Rajbah says that if it is only an Issa de Rabbanan, that would not be a problem at all. We Paskin like the Rambam. Mr. Brewer writes that when you have an extenuating circumstance, which does come up every so often, you have to rely on the Rashba, who says that there's no problem to facilitate an Isser to a child if the Isser that we're describing is only an Isser de Rabbana. Let's give a common practical example like we started with. See, we're almost out of time. The post can discuss what happens if I have a light that goes out on Shabbos. And I'm having a whole house of company and I need the lights to be on or the light in the playroom is off. So what am I going to do? The kids have to play on Shabbos and there's no windows and there's no lights. So what am I supposed to do? Of course, I'm not allowed to turn on the light myself. That would be a malach on Shabbos. So what can I do? I'm sure many of us have seen that a child is brought next to the light switch and you hold the child right there and you hope that the child is going to get the hint. It's going to get the message. Is that permissible or is that something that is prohibited on Shabbos? What would you say? What? You say it's prohibited. Why is it prohibited? There's no justification for how that could be allowed. You're saying because I'm taking the child, I'm actively helping the child do something wrong, that's a malach on Shabbos. Whether it's a malach on Shabbos or the Rabbanon, maybe you'll say it's LED light, so it's not a real fire, whatever. Uh, either way, we paskin like the Rambam. You're not allowed to have a child do any malacha, whether it's the Raisa or the Rabbanan. They can't do anything that's prohibited for an adult. Child is not allowed to do either, and I'm not allowed to facilitate that. So it would seem at face value that that is something that is certainly not permissible. However, there is a way to do it properly. How is there a way to do it properly? The Achronim say as follows. The postkim in our generation say as follows. If I have a child who is lohi gialachinah, a child is two years old. They don't know about Shabbos. They don't know about Malacha. They don't understand turning lights on and off is something that is a problem for them to think about at all. So if I actively take the child and make them turn the light on, that's a problem because I'm not allowed to actively have my child do anything wrong. But like we started, the Gemara says, if a child is doing something wrong on their own and I did not actively facilitate them doing so, Shulchan Aruch Paskins, I don't have to stop them. Correct? I don't have to stop them. So in this scenario, if I have a child who is a lav bar chinuch, a child who is beneath the age of chinuch, and doesn't really have an understanding, plus the child is not doing it only for me. If the child would do it for me, then that would be a prohibition of ata uvincha uvitecha. Right? On Shabbos, I'm not allowed to do a malacha, and I'm not allowed to have someone else do a malacha for me. So if a child is less than the age of chinuch, Plus, the child is not doing it for me. I don't bring the child and say, please turn the light on. All I do is I bring the child here, I bring a bunch of toys, and in the context of them playing with all the toys, maybe they're going to flip the switch also. In that scenario, we would say that the child who is beneath the age of Chinuch, who doesn't have an understanding of what they're doing and is doing it for themselves because they just see it as part of the toys that they're playing with, that would be permissible. That would be a permissible way to do it. But if I have a child who is above the age of Chinuch, and does understand, that would certainly be something that is prohibited. I would not be allowed to do that. Either because, or because they're doing it for me, or because of chinuch purposes in general, I have to make sure that I educate my children properly, that they shouldn't make a mistake later when they get older, and assume that this is permissible. Let's give another example. Shalom Zalman Arbach talks about the following. We'll close with this. What happens in the following scenario? I forgot to turn off the light in the refrigerator on Shabbos. Now, every time I'm going to open and close the refrigerator, it's going to go on. So, of course, I cannot open it on Shabbos, and I cannot close it either. So, what do I do? Happens all the time. So, what do I do? Can I have a child open the door to the refrigerator? They don't know the light's going on, light's going off, they're totally unaware. Am I allowed to have a child do that or not? Shlomo Zalman Arbach talks about it, and he says, if we're talking about a child who is beneath the age of Chinuch, then there's what to discuss. If the child is over the age of Chinuch, then there's nothing to talk about. The same way I'm not allowed to do it, the child is not allowed to do it. 
But if we're talking about a child who is beneath the age of Chinuch, who doesn't understand what Shabbos is all about, doesn't understand what Malacha is about, doesn't understand that when you open the refrigerator, the light goes on, light goes off, they have no understanding. And I didn't say to the child, oh, please open the refrigerator because I have all this food in there that I want to get out. I say to the child, oh, would you like a cheese stick? Would you like a yogurt? Would you like a can of soda? You're going to find that in the refrigerator. So now the child is doing it for themselves. The halacha is when a child does something wrong, but it's really something that I didn't facilitate. It's something they're doing on their own. I don't have to stop them. The only problem would be if he's of the age of chinuch. Then I have a chinuch component that comes into it. And that's why I would have to make sure not to be involved. Is this too complicated? Is it clear? It's complicated or it's clear? Clear. So these are the two examples that I, that I think are extremely relevant. And there could be a hundred other examples. But these two examples would be ones that are very, very clear in the postkim that we would say that would be a good workaround. That would be a good way to take care of this problem. Outside of that, you would have a major issue because outside of that, you run into all the problems that we discussed. Again, it goes way beyond Hilchah Shabbos. This is something that is far-reaching consequences to all areas of Torah and all areas of Halacha, but something that is extremely important because this comes up all the time. Yes, question. 